You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. In the history of humanity, one of the legends for bringing about good in the world has been Mohandas Gandhi, known around the globe by the honorific title Mahatma. Through living a lifestyle of nonviolence and teaching and acting on the principles of nonviolent resistance, Gandhi brought about great change, especially in India. All of this is known by people around the world. What is not as well known is that Gandhi's children, their families, and Gandhi's grandchildren have carried forward Gandhi's vision. One of those grandchildren is my guest for this episode, Aran Gandhi. Aran has written two books that share with us the lessons he learned from his grandfather during the two-year period Aran, as a young person, lived with his grandfather. Those are Legacy of Love, My Education in the Path of Nonviolence, and The Gift of Anger. There are two insights from Aaron's books that, to me, illustrate the impact of Gandhi upon his grandson. The first is the story Aaron tells of his struggles as a grandson learning to live and deal with the legendary legacy of Gandhi. Aaron was wisely guided by his mother, who said to all her children, There are two ways of dealing with it. You can either choose to be overwhelmed and live in grandfather's shadow, or you can use the glow of his light to illuminate your path. The second is the often quoted admonition by Gandhi to be the change you want to see in the world. Allowing his grandfather's light to guide his path and being the change he wanted to see in the world, in addition to the books Aaron has written, Aaron, along with his wife, has developed two organizations that have created and are still creating good in the world. Those are the Center for Social Change in India and in the United States, the M.K. Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. I want to thank Rob Sellers, who you know from my interview with him in episode 44, for making this connection and interview possible. And so it is with great honor that I introduce to you, and welcome to this podcast, Aaron Gandhi. Well, welcome, Aaron. Thank you for being with me today. I am very grateful for you spending your time uh, to do this for me. Thank you for having me on the show. Um, let's begin uh, by letting you tell us, um, you know, I knew that, that, and then you narrate in your books that you spent two years with your grandfather when you were 10 and 12. But mm. at some point in your life, uh, you decided to take up his legacy and promote his teachings. Uh, you know, what was the event or, or set of events uh, that kind of led to you making that choice? I don't think there was a, a one single defining moment that made me do that. I think it was just the general upbringing and the experiences that I had, both with my parents as well as the grandparents. Um, you know, right from the time I was born, I saw my parents... Uh, working for the poor people, working for uh, justice in South Africa and going into prisons and, and all that suffering. 
and um, you know that uh, also gave me a grounding and uh, and a, a good understanding of uh, what uh, the meaning of life is and uh, you know there were little things like uh, i saw my mother for instance uh, she would uh, get clothes uh, used clothes from her friends in the city and uh, she had one room uh, allocated as her storeroom where she would hang up all these clothes and invite the very poor african laborers who didn't afford uh, any clothes to come and uh, buy whatever they wanted and the prices that she put for these clothes and things were ridiculous you know just a penny or two pennies and three pennies for a shirt and one day i asked my mother i said why do you put such a, a low price why not just give it to me and she said no we need to understand that even the poor have dignity and and self respect and we need to build that by giving them things free we are making them more dependent and we crush their uh, dignity and self respect by charging this little amount of money they feel that they have bought the thing and they feel pride in it and so uh, it's a kind of indirect way of building their dignity and self respect and then of course uh, later my mother and father both explained to me uh charity what is charity and how do we give it and um, they explained the thing uh, charity is uh, motivated either by compassion or by pity and the difference there is uh, that when you are motivated by pity you just feel sorry for the person give them some money and walk away from the uh, thinking that you've done your good deed for the day but if you are motivated by compassion then you stop to think uh, and and find out why is this person incapable of doing things uh, on his or her own and why uh, are, are they in this kind of situation and then find ways in which you can help them realize their own potential and and uh, uh, become uh, self sufficient in their life so these are this is the difference between charity uh, motivated by pity and charity motivated by compassion so all these little lessons and things that uh, i saw my parents do and then uh, it was kind of fortified by the two years that i spent with grandfather and and saw him in action and uh, when i grew up and went to india and uh, uh, you know i had no intention of living in india but i was forced to live there because the south african government wouldn't allow me to bring my wife back and um, the in indian wife and uh, so i was forced to live in india and there i saw the the poverty and the destitution and the oppression uh, of the low caste people and uh, i just felt that uh, you know 
I had to do something about it, however small it may be. And I just got into it. And so while I was living in India, I was more of an activist. And uh, when I came here, I became more of a uh, academic teaching the philosophy and and uh, explaining it to people. How did you um, decide to become a journalist, and in what way did you use that to kind of further your grandfather's work? Well, there were two reasons for it. I felt uh, that I had that urge to write and to, uh, you know, discover new uh, things that were happening in society and highlight them. And, uh, and that was one uh, important reason. And the other was uh, that was the only job available for me at the time in, uh, in India. And so I, I took it, although many people, including uh, my father's brother, who was in journalism for all his life, uh, he tried to dissuade me from getting into journalism, saying that it was a horrible profession and, and not worth uh, going into. But uh, I had that strong motivation to... Uh, to write about uh, poverty and, and the problems of people and, and uh, you know, highlight them. So I just went into journalism and uh, stayed there all my life. Well, I know that you um, uh, talked about that your, that your grandfather uh, wanted to promote uh, his understanding and teachings of, of nonviolence. Uh, but he saw simplicity as the means or the basis for being able to achieve that. Mm. Um, explain that a little bit for us. Um, how is it that simplicity helps promote nonviolence? Well, one of the things that Grandfather Key always talked about was that uh, materialism and morality have an inverse relationship. When one increases, the other decreases. And we find that uh, in modern times, we have become very materialistic and, um, you know, we want to possess things and buy things. And, and uh, so we get so involved in, in that kind of thing. And then we have to preserve all those things. And uh, so we don't have time for... Uh, uh, community work or, or uh, working for justice and, uh, and, and so we quietly accept injustice uh, because we don't want to disturb our way of life. So uh, it, this, the more possessions we have, the more we are bound uh, to secure them and, uh, and uh, and, and and you keep it growing and keep it, uh, you know, uh, expanding. Uh, and so we spend all our energy in that effort instead of trying to uh, improve our lives. You said that 
there is a tendency on the part of some to take your grandfather's teaching kind of rigidly and dogmatically, but that that's mm-hmm. not, not ever what he intended. Uh, explain that. Yeah, well, you see today, um, you know, because he used uh, mostly uh, his philosophy to gain independence for India, and gain justice for the uh, people in South Africa. Uh, everybody has looked at his philosophy only uh, as a political tool for conflict resolution. And, and so they haven't understood the real essence of his philosophy. And the true essence of his philosophy is that we want to transform People, we want to transform and uh, change people. And that can happen only if we stop looking at them as enemies and start looking at them as friends who need guidance. And, and that was the crux of his philosophy. Whenever he talked about it and, and explained it to people, he said, I am not fighting an enemy. I am trying to transform a friend. And how do you transform a friend? You can't do it by aggression and and arrogance. You can only do it through respect and love. And uh, you have to show that respect and love to the other person and try to sit down and find out how best we can resolve this issue. So, uh, you know, today we see um uh, in in the us uh, the race uh, problem still festers in spite of all these civil rights actions and laws that we have passed the same thing happened in india we, in spite of all the laws that have been passed to make uh, discrimination illegal we still have discrimination in india and that is because we are trying to resolve a, a, a how can I put it, uh, it's more of a relationship problem by passing laws. Uh, and we can't resolve all the problems by law. Uh, you know, now here in the United States, you can see that we passed laws giving rights to uh, the African-American people. Uh, But the prejudice still continues. So um, the laws can only enable the African-American people to enjoy um, the right to go where they were prohibited from going. But it cannot make an individual uh, like or respect uh, uh, the other individual uh, if they don't want to. There is no law that can force one person to uh, like and respect uh, another person. And that is where the whole problem uh, has gotten uh, uh, stuck and we uh, can't seem to move out of it. So the philosophy of nonviolence is one that gives us the uh, the uh, if we have the right mindset 
And if we have that uh, kind of love and respect for each other, that uh, gives us the ability to reach out to the person and, and um, you know, build a better relationship uh, where we won't have that discrimination and, and oppression. You speak of um, the use of creativity mm-hmm. um, in building relationships and helping resolve conflict. Uh, can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, there are many uh, examples. Uh, I'll give you one example in my own case. Uh, you know, I told you earlier that I was forced to live in South Africa, uh, in India, because the South African racist government wouldn't allow me to bring my Indian wife back to South Africa. So uh, one day, and this happened sometime in the late 1960s, um, I got a letter from an Indian friend of mine uh, from South Africa, who was coming out uh, on a tour of India for the first time. And he was very nervous about traveling out of the country. And um, because I was a good friend of his, he asked me if I would um, receive him when he arrived in Bombay and whether I would make arrangements for his travels in the country. And I said, okay, I'll do that. And uh, he was coming by ship. And I went, the ship arrived in Bombay at some late in the night. uh, And uh, I was the first Indian to board the ship to meet my friend. But before I could meet him, a strange white man came and shook my hands and uh, introduced himself as Mr. Jackie Basson a member of parliament from South Africa. The moment he introduced himself, I realized who he was, that he was a member of the Nationalist Party. He was responsible uh, for the apartheid uh, laws. Uh, He was a very outspoken supporter of those laws. Uh, I had followed his political career. And uh, so I held him responsible for my fate. And I, for a moment, I wanted to insult him and, uh, you know, tell him to go to hell. I'm not going to do anything for you. Uh, I don't care for you. But immediately that thought was dismissed because I realized that my parents and grandparents would never forgive me if I did that. And so instead of uh, being insulting towards him, I shook hands with him and I told him in a very uh, calm way, I said, uh, you know, I am a victim of apartheid uh, because your government wouldn't allow me to come to South Africa with my wife. But I said, I'm not going to hold it against you. Uh, You are a guest in this country, and I'm going to do my very best to uh, make your little stay here as pleasant as possible. He was in transit. He was going to continue on the journey on that ship. But the ship was in town for about four days. 
And for all that time, my wife and I spent all the time from morning till evening taking him and his wife around the city and doing all the touristy things. And during that time, we also talked about uh, prejudice and apartheid. You know, I was trying to find out how he could justify this philosophy. And he was doing his very best to explain it to me. And whenever the discussion got a little uh, delicate, we just stopped and talked about other things. And I didn't realize, and I had no intention of this, uh, and that, uh, you know, he would transform. But on the last day when we both uh, met them to say goodbye, they both hugged us and cried, literally cried tears of remorse. And they uh, apologized to us and they said, in these three, four days that we have been together, you have opened our eyes to the evils of prejudice. And we promise you that we are going to go back and fight apartheid and try to dismantle all this prejudice. I was still skeptical. I wasn't willing to uh, accept his uh, uh, explanation. And I told my wife, I said, you know, these people have a habit of coming out of the country and saying something else. And when they go back into the country, they just automatically slip into the same old uh, tradition. So let's wait and see whether he really means it or he was just saying this to make us feel good. And I followed his career for the next uh, five, six years. And I must say the man was changed. He was such an outspoken critic of apartheid. He lost his election. He lost his uh, membership in the party. and uh, But he didn't stop talking against apartheid. And I kept thinking about that, and I said, you know, just uh, four days, three, four days of kindness and, and respect uh, brought about this transformation in this person who was uh, outspoken racist. And, um, you know, if I had initially give, uh, wanted to just insult him, I would have had that pleasure for a moment that I insulted a white man and, and got away with it. But he would have gone back as a confirmed racist and uh, feeling that these uh, Indians deserve what they get. And nothing would have changed. But uh, that convinced me that being respectful and kind towards people genuinely uh, can transform uh, people. One of the things that your grandfather talked about was that he saw the uh, ashram experience as being essential to helping promote his philosophy uh, and the lifestyle of nonviolence. Uh, how is it that that's the case? There are two reasons, two main reasons for it. One was uh, that he was trying to teach people that we need to look beyond the nuclear family. 
that we are as a human family we are all uh, brothers and sisters and we need to learn to uh, live together and respect each other and uh, uh, and uh, be more inclusive uh, which was a very important part of the the uh, ashram life and uh, the second was uh, he was trying to explain to people the importance of simplicity uh, to be able to live a simple life, produce your own food uh, and, and work for it and, and uh, you know, just be content with a, a simple, simple life instead of this materialistic life that we follow. We speak of them, or he spoke of them as experiments. Um, and so what do you think has been the, the, the legacy of those experiments and what has been learned from those experiments? Well, I, I mean, he was experimenting mostly uh, with, the, you know, pursuing truth and what is truth and what is life and and the meaning of life, and uh, uh, he continued to do that. And uh, I think even to, he learned small lessons from everyday life uh, in that pursuit. But uh, the larger lesson about, uh, you know, God and, and what we call God, the power that we call God, is there any power of that kind? Is there any hell and heaven? Uh, and what what is uh, you know what is religion? And and other things that the religion says. Uh, where does it come from? So uh, these were the, the truths that he was trying to find. And uh, I don't think he. Uh, uh, he found them to his satisfaction, but he pursued pursued it all his life. Are there ways of um, continuing the principles of ashram living without living in an ashram? Well, just uh, being living simply, uh, you know, not amassing a lot of uh, possessions and wealth and and uh, being more uh, compassionate towards the community you live in, try to help the people who are uh, struggling. Uh, there are many ways in which we can continue to be uh, uh, good citizens. Okay. One of the things that uh, you talked about uh, that your grandfather uh, taught was the five principles of nonviolence. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, words have content, have definition, have meaning. Um, so how, how do you and your own understanding um, define uh, those words uh, that that were the principles of compassion, love, uh, acceptance, uh, and the other ones. Um, 
talk about that, how you, how you understand each of the, the definitions of those words. Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, these uh, are ways in which we should be building our relationships with each other. Uh, There there should be love, respect, understanding, acceptance, and appreciation uh, for, for each other. And the reason for that, he said, is uh, when we respect ourselves and respect each other and respect our connection with all of creation, which is very important because today in life we uh, teach people quite the contrary. We teach them to be independent, to think about themselves, uh, to do whatever they they want to do, uh, and you know, not be considered about the consequences of that on other people. Uh, so independence has become a very important factor in modern life. Uh, and he said uh, that is wrong. We have to respect uh, that you know interconnection. When we learn to respect then we understand who we are and what we are and why are we here on earth. We are not here by accident. We are not here um, just while away our time from birth to death. We are here for a purpose. And at the very least, the purpose of each one of us is to ensure that when we leave, we have left the world a little better by our being present there, then we found it uh, when we were born. And if we all learn to fulfill that uh, purpose in life, then we will be able to accept each other as human beings and not identify people by the labels we have put upon ourselves. Today we have so many labels to identify people that we have forgotten that behind those labels there is a human being there. And we are always, you know, labeling people, economic labels and religious labels and, uh, you know, all kinds of labels that we have put upon them to identify them. And we have to remove those labels and just accept people as human beings. And when we accept that we will then um, understand and appreciate our own humanity. So this is why it is important that we understand these lessons, these uh, these uh, the meaning behind uh, these principles of nonviolence, and learn to build relationships accordingly. You make the distinction between acceptance and tolerance. What's the difference in that? Well, you know, we can tolerate uh, people, uh, but we don't necessarily have to respect them or like them. uh, Because we can't do anything about it, we just tolerate them. And that should not be our attitude towards people. We've got to accept them and respect them 
and uh, you know build a better relationship with them that is when we are, we can really be uh, you know compassionate and loving towards each other by tolerance we are being judgmental we are judging them and we say well i don't like that guy but because i can't do anything about it i'm just going to love and that is the kind of relationship we have today we are tolerating everybody and and that tolerance can then expand and grow and we then begin to tolerate injustice tolerate uh, all kinds of things happening uh, uh, you know which are detrimental to society and uh, we get into that kind of a, a mode of tolerance that goes beyond human relationships one of the things that uh, in both of your books that uh, I've read um, talked about, your grandfather talked about the importance of anger, that anger was actually a good thing, uh, where we tend to think of it as not a good thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so talk about, talk about the understanding of anger that he had and that, that you have promoted. Yeah, he explained, uh, you know, he himself had anger issues uh, earlier in his life, and he learned that by abusing anger, we are only aggravating the situation, and we need to learn uh, better ways of dealing with anger. And so uh, he spent much of his life trying to control those emotions. And when he explained it to me, he used the analogy of electricity. He said, just as an electrical circuit in your home, you have the uh, circuit breaker that uh, goes off when something is wrong uh, in the electrical circuit. It's warning you that there's something wrong there and you've got to look for it and fix it and then uh, restart the circuit. And uh, the same principle exists in anger. Anger is what, warning us that there's something wrong that uh, we need to stop and look at and, and fix it before we move on. But instead, because we are so ashamed of anger and so ashamed of talking and teaching it, that uh, we allow everybody to find their own ways of dealing with anger. And the result is that we all abuse anger and create situations which change the course of our lives completely. And we see this today in the proliferation of uh, crime in the country uh, with the number of people who have gone to prisons uh, because in the moment of anger they did something uh, that they shouldn't have. And then they spend the rest of their life repenting what they did. So if we learn that anger can be used effectively, can be used constructively, uh, then we can stop abusing anger and be able to channel that energy constructively in trying to find solutions to it. And uh, this, uh, you know, has been borne out by 
a study done by Harvard University uh, recently where they came to the conclusion that more than 80% of the violence that we experience in our lives today is generated by anger. Now imagine if all of us can learn to use anger constructively, we would reduce violence by 80%. And that's a substantial amount. Yes, it is. <laughs> You're right. Um, well, one of the, one of the sayings you said your grandfather repeated often was be, be the change that you envision. And you have done that. Um, and, and it's manifested itself in the fact that you have begun, uh, several organizations. Um, let's, let's talk about those a little bit. Uh, talk about how you, uh, thought about you and I guess you and your wife thought about uh, the Center for Social Change in India. Mm -hmm. um, how did that, how did you envision that and how did you begin that and what was the, the work of that organization? Yeah, grandfather, you know, always told me when I was living with him uh, that uh, one of the things I should uh, always do is every morning when I get up, I should tell myself that I'm going to be a better person today than I was yesterday. And then I had to make an effort to become a better person. And the way that can be done is by acknowledging all the weaknesses that you have in your life. Make a list of it, all the things that you consider to be your weaknesses uh, and uh, what need to be changed. And uh, then try to change each one of them uh, and transform them into strengths. And that is how we, we become better human beings and, uh, and, and we, become, uh, we change. And that is how he became from an ordinary uh, lawyer, uh, became uh, a great leader. So that kind of change is something that we should constantly do. Instead, we just, you know, live from day morning to evening and from birth to death, uh, doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, and we don't change much. So, uh, and you know, more, it's more a kind of... Um, you know, change not in the economic sense that we become richer and live a better lifestyle. That's not the uh, change enough. What we need to have is a moral and ethical change as well. So how did that uh, develop into the Center for Social Change in India? Well, I was, as I said, when I went to India, and I saw all this uh, poverty and... and and uh, destitution and oppression. Um, my wife and I both uh, talked about this and we talked with our friends and, and we said, this is what your grandfather would have wanted us to do. What do you think? And we uh, joined hands and worked together. And so we did. And we created this little organization um, 
it had a big name, but uh, no financial backing or anything. But we didn't mind that. We were able to find a way to uh, uh, to find the means to do it. And the means that we adopted was to uh, uh, to get the people to realize their own potential and, and be able to uh, achieve that their goals. The one example that I can share with you is that uh, we have this homeless problem in, in Bombay. Uh, if you have been to Bombay, uh, India, you would know that millions of people live out on the streets and they are so poor that uh, they have no uh, amenities. They just live, scrounge around, uh, beg for food and, and live on the streets. And uh, it's a miserable life. And uh, yet they do have a potential to uh, become better people. So we gathered about uh, 600-odd uh, people, homeless people, and we spoke to them and we said, uh, we will try to help you, uh, but you need to be a part of the solution. And uh, we are not going to give you anything on a platter. Uh, you will have to uh, make sacrifices and and uh, do things for yourself. And since they had no other alternative, they will they accepted our challenge and said, "Okay, we will do whatever you tell us." So when we gained their confidence, we uh, also during that discussion, we tried to find out what their strengths were. And we realized that many of them had at one time been handloom producers. They would uh, work on handlooms and produce textile cloth. And when the big uh, textile industry came in, they uh, swept them away and, and they were, became uh, uh, lost everything and became homeless and, uh, and uh, penniless. And so uh, we decided that that would be the ideal thing to uh, to strengthen, to re rebuild on that. So we told them that uh, we were going to challenge you. We uh, want you to save, collectively save a coin every day and create a fund which we will use to uh, try to rehabilitate you. And it seemed ridiculous at the time that uh, people who didn't know where their next meal was going to come from uh, to ask them to save a coin every day. But it was a challenge. It, they had to make some sacrifice to achieve this. And uh, we told them, you know, if you smoke cigarettes, give it up. If you take three cups of tea a day, cut it down to one cup of tea. Do whatever you think you can do and sacrifice that, uh, you know, make that little sacrifice and save a coin every day and and create this fund. And they accepted the challenge and they, uh, about a year and a half later, 
they came back to us with the equivalent of $11,000 that they had saved collectively. With that money, we bought them 10 secondhand textile machines and installed those machines in a little tin shed in, the, in their village. And we sent back uh, several of them to run that factory round the clock so that everybody who had contributed to the fund can uh, benefit from it. And uh, they had no idea of marketing and production and money management and all of these things, but we had to train them. And um, as they, we trained them and they uh, became confident, we handed over the charge to them and then walked away from it. And I was surprised that they not only expanded that their factories, uh, within a few years they had uh, several uh, satellite factories. Uh, they also continued with that small savings habit. And uh, later they opened a cooperative bank which today has six branch offices and total assets worth nearly $2 million. And all this came from people who were homeless, who were regarded by society as brainless people who will never amount to much, uh, but just giving them a, a helping hand and, and talking to them and, and learning from them, we were able to bring about a change in their life. Now their life and the life of their village uh, has completely changed. They provide their uh, own schools and teachers and professionals. Their children went to schools and colleges and came back as uh, professionals and, and uh, lived in the village and, and uh, the village grew. And then they didn't have to migrate into big cities to uh, find jobs. They just found jobs in their own villages. So, you know, the little things that we can do can make a big difference. Uh, and, you know, now they are continuing uh, through the bank and through other means to help other people uh, who are uh, in similar circumstances and uh, and uh, improve their lives. Then you came to the United States, right? And then you began the M.K. Gandhi Institute for Nonviolence. Yeah, the you know two important changes in my life took place uh, without any planning. Uh, like I told you, I was forced to live in India because the South African government wouldn't allow me to come back with my Indian wife. Uh, that was first change. And then uh, this work that we were doing in India uh, with the poor people became quite well known. And, uh, and through the help of a, a Methodist minister in, who was based in Hong Kong, he came to India and he met me and he saw the work that we were doing and 
he was so impressed that he went back uh, to Hong Kong and every in American who came there to me, uh, to Hong Kong, he would uh, tell them to go to India and visit me and, and see the work that I was doing. And so I started getting a steady stream of visitors coming. And once uh, there was a lady from Vicksburg, Mississippi, who was traveling alone, and she came and she saw the work, and uh, my wife and I took her out for dinner that evening. And uh, while we di having dinner, I was very curious about the race problem in this country uh, because of my experience in South Africa. And I was questioning her about uh, the situation and, uh, and uh, you know, the thought just came into my mind. Uh, and I said, somebody should do a comparative study of these prejudices. That the South African prejudice was color-based. It was purely black and white. If you were not white, you were black, and it didn't matter where you came from, which country you came from. In India, we were all the same, and yet we found ways of finding out who is low caste and how to oppress them. And in this country, uh, it was directed against a, a particular group of people. And uh, I said, it's a very fascinating subject, and I wish somebody would do a comparative study. And she asked me, why don't you do it? And I said, well, I don't have the means to come to the U.S. and do that study. Uh, and uh, so we just left it at that. And I was surprised about six to seven months later uh, I got a letter from the University of Mississippi uh, offering me a fellowship to come and do that study and write the book. And that's how I came to the U.S. But uh, while giving me the fellowship to study the, the race issue, they made a mistake of publicizing the fact that Gandhi's grandson was on campus studying racism. And that received a lot of publicity around the country. And everybody came to know that I was here. And I started getting so many invitations to go out and speak that uh, I had to put that study on the back burner. And it is still there since the last 35 years. <laughs> hmm. Well, so then what, how did this, you began the, the, the institute? Yeah, then I, you know, because there was so much interest in uh, in the philosophy and in Gandhi, uh, I thought to myself, why just do these uh, lectures and, you know, one-day one, one day deals? Instead, why not start a, a, a institute which could also be a teaching institute as well as a community action institute? And uh, so I uh, looked around and, you know, I couldn't find any universities who were interested in the program. And uh, I said, thought to myself, I said, the best thing uh, to do is to raise my own funds and, and do it that way. 
And so I sold the original letters that I had, uh, that were written by grandfather to the family. And uh, there was a packet of letters, you know, and uh, uh, my parents had given it to me after they passed on. And uh, I, I couldn't preserve them because I didn't have the money for it. And they were just in a, a folder and they were deteriorating and uh, very soon would have been lost to humanity. So I said, better to sell them and somebody who can buy them and preserve them, that, that will serve a better purpose. And I would get the money for the Institute. And so I sold them and uh, raised the money I needed to start the Institute. and. Then the Christian Brothers University in Memphis uh, offered hospitality and they said, we can offer you an office space and a place to live in and uh, you can have the institute on the campus here. So for 14 years, it was on the campus of uh, the University of uh, the Christian Brothers University in Memphis. And uh, then my wife's health uh, deteriorated and she subsequently died. And uh, my daughter, who lives in Rochester, was keen that I should come and live close to her because of my age. And so uh, I came here and I decided to move the institute from Memphis to Rochester because the university in Rochester also was very interested in uh, housing it. So we uh, started that and uh, I've been, you know, we have workshops and, uh, and, uh, and programs related to nonviolence. And we have volunteers who go out into the uh, inner city schools here in Rochester and work with the children from the poor families and, and teach them nonviolent conflict resolution. Uh, we have this prison program that I have been going to and, and working with prisoners. Uh, and, you know, several such programs are going on. Well, I am deeply grateful. Uh, for the work that you have done, uh, and thank you uh, for that. Um, and I, our time is up, uh, but I did want to say that I think you uh, have showed us um, that it doesn't matter who you are uh, or where you come from, uh, you can begin with who you are and create important change in the world. Yes, yes, certainly. And so I am, I am, I am thankful uh, that you have showed us that lesson very well. Thank you. I'm gl glad that uh, we had this opportunity, and thank you for inviting me on the show. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The intro and outro music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father, Let Your Kingdom Come, that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project's Work Song album and is used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. This show has as its purpose 
enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Say the word.